Welcome to the audiobook speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who will be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. Tonight's speakeasy chat is being brought to you by Squeaky Cheese Productions on the Cutting Wedge. You can find them on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight is an award-winning narrator who also just so happens to know a great deal about video games. Travis Baldry, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Thanks a lot, Rich. I'm glad you could make it in. Travis, you have joined me in the speakeasy, this being a speakeasy. What are you drinking tonight? I've got a Nika coffee malt whiskey. Oh, nice. Um, so that's C-O-F-F-E-Y. It's it's the name of the still, not actual coffee. No, um, I, I, I that know is, that it's, one. It's that, very that, tasty. That always confuses people. It does always confuse people. And I better pour a little bit in my glass here. Glug, glug, glug. I've been <laughs> mostly teetotal for the last six months, so this is going to be a nice treat. Well, I did see something online about you having lost a substantial amount of weight recently, and is the uh, teetotaling part of that process? Oh, yeah. COVID liquor was not kind to my uh, my pants size. Yeah. No, I understand. Uh, mine either. I uh, had a little bit of a situation there. I've gotten back on my bike, and that has helped. Um, but I, I do understand that, that that you are not alone in that affliction. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, kind of, I don't think so. <laughs> half, half the country is struggling <laughs> with that at the moment. <laughs> so, uh, so, Nika, yeah, I've had... Um, I've had some of their whiskey before. I, I don't remember. Um, get, give me a little more information about that one. Uh, this one's the Nika Coffee Malt Whiskey. Um, they have another, I can't remember. It's a, they have another whiskey that's got a little bit more of a scotchy flavor to it. Um, this one is just, it's, it's really drinkable. It's a little smoky. Um, I just like my whiskey neat. So mm-hmm. good, flavorable, flavorful whiskey that I don't have to drink too much of is usually right up my alley. Yeah. Um, this yeah. was really enjoyable. I remember having the Anika at a, at a restaurant at some place, and it, it was very, uh, very scotch-like. Yeah, they had there's a wide variety. I also really like Hibiki's whiskey. Hibiki Harmony is a nice whiskey. Um, real variety of tastes, but they're usually really, really drinkable. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I just like the variety. That's cool. That's cool. Well, I'm I'm uh, having a whiskey drink along with you, but it is not uh, Nika. I, uh, this is actually an audiobook speakeasy original. I, I call it a Manhattan sunset. It's kind of a, a riff on a riff. So one of my favorite Manhattan riffs is a uh, Monte Carlo, which substitutes a little bit of uh, Benedictine in place mm. of the sweet vermouth. And uh, I really like that. It's it's a little bit sweeter, but you get more of the whiskey because it's a smaller amount of the uh, of the liqueur. And so a couple of weeks ago, I thought, you know, I could probably do that with a a different liqueur. And so uh, I, I tried one with some Grand Marnier instead of uh, Benedictine. So it's got mm. kind of that orange flavor. It's a brandy mm-hmm. base. And uh, and so I really like it. Little, a couple dashes of orange bitters, a couple dashes of aromatic bitters. Um, tonight I'm using uh, a uh, Whistle Pig Piggyback six-year rye and uh, and the Grand Marnier, and uh, I like it. It's uh, it's definitely a Sounds nice, delicious. nice variation. Yeah, I realized a while back, you know, who says you have to make a cocktail like everybody else makes one? Just experiment. <laughs> so I, I'm always throwing liqueurs and liquors together and uh, juices, see what I can come up with. And uh, so I like this one, Manhattan Sunset. Tell me jealous. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Travis, thanks for coming in. Cheers. Cheers. So, uh, so you are up in the Pacific Northwest. Is that where you grew up, or uh, are you a transplant? I'm a transplant. I originally grew up in Texas. Uh, my family had a farm. My dad ran it, had his own dairy. So Ooh. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in the center of Texas in a little town called Eden, whose population broke a thousand when they added a penitentiary within within the uh, <laughs> within the city limits so that they get the tax revenue. Oh, funny. Uh, we had a dime store. Uh, and eventually the, uh, the dairy went under and, uh, we moved up to Washington and have been in Washington and some place or another ever since. And so that was quite a while ago. Quite some time. I think we moved up when I was in the fourth grade. Mm. Do you actually live in Seattle or just outside? Uh, eventually I lived in Seattle. I lived pretty, uh, within sight of the needle. I lived on, uh, Queen Anne, uh, the hill just kind of Northwest of the needle really near the Seattle center. Mm-hmm. Um, I also lived in Redmond, kind of around in the area, but I was in the Seattle area for, I think, 20 years. Oh, wow. um, my wife and I moved over there when I got a job uh, very long ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, I guess in, God, what year even was it? It was 2020. We moved We moved over to the east side of the state kind of to escape the rain and the uh, traffic and the oh, so that's urban just, densification. Just recent. Very recent. Um, and it just happened to time out. We got here and then COVID hit and we locked down. Um, but... We sure have enjoyed the move. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good. I, uh, I love the Seattle area. I just, because of the weather, I just don't know that we could live there. Now, living on the surface of the sun here in Tucson, um, <laughs> I, it, it would be a welcome relief for part of the year, but yeah. uh, I just, I just don't know that I could take the, uh, the darker winter quite so much. And I don't I, envy you your booth heat. I don't <laughs> envy you your booth heat. <laughs> well, fortunately, since I built my booth, instead of working in the closet that I was in, um, depending on the project, I can actually run the air conditioner and then strip out that noise pretty, pretty yeah. transparently with, with RX-8. Um, I, I will choose not to do that for certain things, uh, for certain reasons. Sure. Like I just finished a, a remote duet and yeah. I figure for something like that, I don't want to have any noise in there that will make it more difficult for the engineer to match things up. But yeah, uh, exactly. for, for most stuff, I can, I can strip out the AC pretty easily. And, and so we can leave it running and the house won't, you know, explode, uh, which, <laughs> which my wife appreciates. But, um, but anyway, I'm, I'm not sure that I could take the weather, but I love visiting up there, um, both in Seattle and the surrounding areas. Yeah, it's really beautiful over here. I've got, there's like a hundred lakes in the area. We get actual proper seasons. It's not drizzly and rainy all the time. It's very anti-Seattle in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's still just big enough, you know, where the Book of Mormon can come to town and there's new restaurants all the time. So nice. it's this nice borderline size of city where the traffic doesn't stink, but you still have a lot of the benefits of living in a city. So we really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that sounds cool. It sounds like a, a smart move and it's, and it's so lucky that you did that right before the pandemic hit. Yeah, it was like that, uh, the Indiana Jones clip where he, you know, rolls under the door and then reaches back and grabs the hat. That's basically what's us leaving <laughs> Seattle. Um, I think when we sold our house in Seattle, there were two days left before they shut down all in-person tours of houses for, for realtors. Wow. So we managed to sell it just in time. Just in time. That's great. And I, and the real estate market now in lots of places in the country is just exploding. It's nuts. I believe our city is number five. Wow. Wow. I think people have discovered that they don't have to work in offices. And so you have all of these people who work for Amazon or Microsoft or whatever, who now have discovered, hey, I could just live across the state. And it's like an hour plane flight. If necessary, yeah. The house prices are going to be like half 
maybe maybe I don't have to live here anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's happening all over. Uh, we'll see what the you know the short term, medium term future brings on that front. But uh, it mm -hmm. seems to me that business travel is going to go uh, is going to stay down. So we'll see. So uh, so anyway, so you uh, grew up in Texas for a short time, and then you ended up in Washington. Uh, what about school? Did you go to go to college up there in Seattle? I went to Washington State University on the east side, about an hour south of where I currently live. I'm a dropout. I think I went for a year. Yeah. And uh, then I left to be the webmaster for the Seattle Seahawks, which is how we ended up in Seattle, oh. Od oddly. I've never been to a Seahawks game in my life. <laughs> That's funny. But you can you can manage their website even if you don't I go to a so. game. <laughs> it was very surreal. I think I worked for them about uh, six months before I skipped off to something else because it was uh -huh. a very – it was a very interesting organization that had been bought by Paul Allen, who promptly like fired half the staff and then replaced them with his own. So it was kind of like a weird sort of fraught place. Microsoft Paul Allen? Yep. Oh, yep. I didn't he realize was the, that. Uh, he, he owned the Seahawks or partially owned. I'm not really sure how that worked out. Vulcan Northwest, his big mega company had owned the Seahawks, I guess. Huh. I never got too deep into the details, but. <laughs> and, and with only six months in, it's not all that surprising. Yeah. So, so, um, so after working on the web, so, so what happened in school? You just decided that just wasn't for you. It wasn't, uh, you weren't interested. It just didn't seem, I mean, I was interested in computer programming I mean, that's what I did. Mm. Uh, I did it on the side. That was my interest. And there's only so much you can get at a school where it's all grad students who would rather not be teaching you that stuff because uh -huh. it moves so fast. So yeah. it wasn't like when I had an opportunity to go and work as an engineer for, you know, what seemed like a crazy amount of money, but was not, it was just because I was in college and living on beans. Mm -hmm. Um, it just seemed like the right thing to do. So because I, I was just going to spend more money going to school to learn things that I didn't really need to learn there Yeah, that I could just practically learn elsewhere. So yeah, that's I, what we did. I tend to think that's the case in a lot of majors. And um, I, I'm really curious about how education is going to progress in, in this country and worldwide, actually. It, it just seems like there's a lot of learning of stuff that doesn't, in the end, actually have a whole lot of practical value. And I think that that's true in computer science uh, as well as other things. It's so much easier to learn things than it used to be too, because so yep. much information is readily available. I yep. mean, if you wanted to learn engineering long ago, you really did have to go and either get some literature that, that you, you know, found that would let you, that would let you learn those skills or you had to find someone who could teach it to you. Mm -hmm. Um, and now th this information is just, it's just falling out of things. I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. So I've always been a learner that had to kind of like practically learn stuff anyway. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't absorb by, by listening. I only absorb by doing so. It, it made sense for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely understand. Um, and so you did the web thing and then, uh, where'd you go from there? So you did more computer programming uh, type stuff. I went to a company called wild tangent that made 3d website stuff. And I sort of forced my way into doing games, which is what I actually wanted to do. So I made a bunch of games there while I, I would think I was there for like seven years. I made a game called fate, which now people tell me they played on their parents Dells and it makes me feel really old. <laughs> um, and uh, it was kind of a 3D isometric Diablo style game. And then I ended up working as a result of that with the people who made Diablo, the classic isometric action RPG. Um, I went to work for them at Flagship Studios, which ran out of San Francisco, but I operated a little Seattle office that made kind of a, we called it Tugboat. It was like the canary in the mineshaft game for their big game. It was supposed uh, to prove out all of their technology. And it. Uh, it was cool. But the various dramas happened. They eventually shut their doors. 
and I took all of my employees at that point effectively, and we bought our office equipment at liquidation, and we started a new company, which was Runic Games, which made the Torchlight series, and I did that for, I don't remember how many years, until I got tired of running a company with that many people, and uh, then I left again and started over again with just two people, uh, my partner Eric Schaefer and I, who was the lead designer for Diablo, Diablo 2, and uh, that was the last game studio I ran, which still exists, but is not going to make anything else. Well, that's kind of cool, though, that that you got into, um, you know, you, you had a desire to get into games, and uh, through a variety of steps, you made it there. And, uh, and then you were able to start your own company, which is kind of a huge deal. And I can certainly understand not wanting to keep doing that, having, having been in a management position, not running my own company with employees, but having been in a management position, I hope like hell that I never have to do that again. Um, and so I can totally understand not wanting to do that anymore, but yeah. you, were, you were able to, and, uh, and that's cool. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was always an awkward setup because I never wanted to manage anything at all. So it was really just an ancillary thing that I needed to do to make sure everything got done. Mm -hmm. I've always been an engineer and a designer. And so I, I did those things and I, that was my main gig, but the rest of it was just keeping, keeping things together and yeah. learning how to run a business and how to deal with people and personnel issues and conflicting personalities and all that other stuff that comes with running a company. Yeah. Um, and uh, game development is a cool industry. And if you do well at it, it can be a very lucrative industry, industry but it's very punishing. It's, mm, yeah. I tell people it's kind of like, just take a couple million dollars, put them in the middle of the table, light it on fire, and when it all burns down, pray that a new pile of money appears. Because that's basically <laughs> how game development works. It's a huge investment of cash and human resources into building a thing in an industry where everything moves very fast. Yeah. So by the time you get done building it, the world is not the same world it was when you started. Right. Um, and uh, the relationship is very, is very different than, for instance, audiobooks. One of the one of the reasons I love audiobooks so much is because the relationship between narrators and authors and listeners is actually fairly positive. I mean, mm -hmm. everybody gets a bad review, sure, but you know they give you one star and they say I hate you, and then they leave and then they're gone, and that's the end of your interaction. Right. They don't demand that you re-record the book. <laughs> they don't. They don't follow you from place to place online trying to dox your family. The The relationship is just, frankly, a healthier one. Um, the games industry is, has got its, is, is wonderful in lots of ways, but also has a lot of kind of pitfalls. There's not a lot of old people in the game industry. Yeah. <laughs> you get to a certain point in that kind of an industry, and, and uh, before you get old, you decide to get out. You decide to get out. Sounds like you know, and I, what happened I to feel you. super fortunate because I got to have a real career where I did, I, I was successful. I did what I wanted to do. And then on my own terms, I just get to have a different career. So I feel enormously fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah and I'm grateful great. for all of the time I had doing the game development work that I initially set out to do. And it's benefited me in all kinds of ways. But it's really great to be able to start over and do something totally different. Yeah. And I'm sure that, you know, even though the management aspect of owning the company was not one of the fun parts, I'm sure that it was very helpful in terms of then running your own business as an audiobook producer. I mean, it it is in just a bunch of little ways. Just being responsible for something and making making sure that it happens on time, that you stay on task, that you learn how to optimize your usage of time, to schedule. You know, these are all just valuable 
existing in the world skills that you have to sharpen in doing that, that end yeah. up enormously valuable. Yeah, um, no doubt. Even being an engineer is valuable. I write software that I use for audiobook narration. It saves me a bunch of time, you know. Um, doing sound engineering in game development is not substantially different from doing sound engineering for, for audiobooks. Mm -hmm. I mean. <laughs> so in, in the games then, were you responsible for voiceover work for people doing characters and, and recording them in person or anything like that? Yes. Yes. Uh, and some, on some of them, um, I directed on multiple projects, all the torchlights and, uh, and then the games that we did after. And I didn't actually start doing voiceover work until the last game I did. I did a substantial amount on that. Um, but yeah, we, I, I casted and, uh, directed and usually wrote a lot of the script. Um, and, uh, so that was, that's all been very useful. Yeah, no um, doubt. I mean, the, the more comfortable you are with recording equipment, I know that that's, that's still for a lot of the people who are new to the industry, that's a, a huge learning curve and a, and a big hurdle to get over when you're first Certainly. starting out is it's not just a matter of, well, this is a mic. I guess I talk into it. It's, you know, these days you've got to be your own engineer. You've got to be your own director and having a facility with the software and with the hardware. Uh, it's, it's a huge deal. Not, not uh, easy for a lot of people. Yeah. There's a lot of scariness to just penetrating it to start with. It's just a whole lot of unknowns. And until you get a little bit of a, a foothold, you know, it's very daunting. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for a lot of people, once, once you kind of got your, got your inroads, it, I think it becomes a lot less scary. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, hopefully it does. That's my impression from other narrators that I've talked to. Yeah, no, mine, mine as well. I've got friends who are, um, you know, they're very comfortable around computers, but not, didn't know all that much about the, the hardware and the interface and all the other things. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, once, once you do get to a certain level, at least you can kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Even if you're not an expert using the equipment, it definitely does get easier. But that, that first, that first step is often really difficult. So, um, that certainly did, I'm sure give you a leg up having, having the experience in the video games. Um, so, so when did, when did you decide, why did you decide, uh, well, I've been a game developer. I've owned my own company. I'm going to be a narrator. Um, I mean, I started doing it on this side. I guess it's been, it's got to have been over four years. Um, I wanted to not lease or, or I didn't want to pay for studio time to have actors record. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't really want to do that. I would rather just be able to have them come into my basement and get in this booth and do audio. Um, and, and myself, because I, I was going to record a certain amount of character work. And so I ended up getting a booth um, because there was no suitable place in my house to do it. But it was still cheaper, you know, in total than actually all of what I would have paid for studio time. Mm -hmm. And it was more flexible, you know, because I didn't have to schedule it on their terms. So yeah. I ended up getting a booth. Um, and uh, at some point in there, I, I ran across ACX. Um, I've always enjoyed reading to my kids and my wife. And, uh, I thought, ah, I've got this equipment. Why don't I do that? And tried it out and discovered that I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and so I kept doing it on the side and kept doing it on the side. And, um, at some point, you know, you kind of feel the wheels start to take you know, the, it's the plane starts to leave the tarmac. Mm -hmm. You can kind of feel yourself start to lift off as far as understanding how frequently you're going to get projects and feeling comfortable relying on them. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think a, it's, a year, probably a year before the last game I did shipped, I knew it was what I was going to do. Oh, wow. Uh, that's great. So you had a long transition. I had a time. long, and I let, and I let 
the, I had a couple guys working with me and I let them know as well. I was like, this is going to be the last one, but we're going to have a really long, smooth transition afterward where, you know, everybody gets paid and bonuses and we'll make this nice. But I got to kind of ease out on my own terms. I shipped the game, I did the thing, and then I basically grafted over. Um, it just sort of sunset the company. It sits around and it collects revenue from games that we've already made, but I'm effectively retired yeah. from that. Yeah. And uh, I just got to switch from one to the other and uh, then make the big change from you know part-time narrating to figuring out how I'm going to do this full-time and how I'm going to organize my days. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a, a big issue for a lot of people who are working on their own. Organi- keeping everything organized. I got to ask you, I loved hearing that. You said that you used to read to your kids and your wife. So tell me about yeah. that. My, my wife likes being read to. I used to, she used to have a lot of problems going to sleep. Um, so I would read out loud to her. I read her the Harry Potter series. I read her, uh, Julian May novels. Uh, I read her Stephen King and, uh, it was, it was just something I did. I really enjoyed doing it. Stephen um, King to help her get to sleep. You're cruel. <laughs> well, we, uh, we're both big fans of like the Dark Tower series. Oh, uh, uh, okay. And uh, Frank Muller, one of my favorite narrators of all time, was the narrator for that um, eventually. And uh, we really liked his voice. We, we listened to CDs in the car or yep. tapes. Um, yep. uh, and uh, so I, I really loved the way that those productions were done. I loved how dynamic it was. And they were just so damn entertaining that I enjoyed reading things out loud that way. And so before I actually started doing these, I had a lot of practice at that point of just reading a whole lot of books end to end out loud for long periods of time. So at least I had a certain amount of yeah. <laughs> understanding that I really wanted to do it, that I, that I, that I enjoyed it. I just have to uh, say, I, I just love hearing that you are the only person that I've spoken with that, that I can remember who has, besides me, who used to read to their wife. And, and I used to read to my family. So when I was a kid, of course, my, mm-hmm. my parents taught me to read by reading to me like most parents do. Yeah. And, and I loved it. And when I was about 10 or 11 or 12 years old, um, I read a book called The Lemonade Trick by Scott Corbett, if I remember the name correctly. He also wrote The Big Joke Game. And I loved those books. And I thought, I would love to read this to my parents. Now, I wasn't thinking of it in terms of, I'm going to be a performer and I'm going to perform this for my family. I was just thinking, this would be fun. And so yeah. I asked my parents, can I, can I read this out loud? And they were kind of like taken aback and like, well, uh, sure. Okay. And so I started reading after dinner to my parents and my sister and I loved it. I thought that it was so much fun. And, um, after we'd been married for a while, um, I said something like that to Jenny and I ended up reading her some of the books that I read to my family back then, plus other like mm-hmm. young adult series from when I was a young adult back in the dark ages. And, yeah. um, and, and I loved it and it was so much fun. She thought it was great. So, uh, I, I love it's, hearing it that. It is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is, so after I started reading audiobooks, I thought, you know what? Now I don't have to read to my kids anymore. They didn't really want me to anyway. <laughs> um, I can just record these books and then they'll listen to them. No, not a no. chance. <laughs> but my wife does. My wife listens to a lot of the things I record. In fact, my wife probably hears me on headphones far more than she actually hears me in real life. <laughs> that is too funny. Well, I cannot say that. My wife is not a big audiobook fan. She's she's listened, and we have listened on road trips. 
um, mm-hmm. to, to audiobooks. But in general, that's just not the way she likes. She she is a reader and has been yeah. for you know from from the age that I was. I'm sure if if not younger, and uh, she still has either a book or her Kindle in her hand almost all the time. So <laughs> she is just not a big audiobook fan. But <laughs> but that's cool. I I love hearing that 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 you read to your wife. Uh, so you got into audiobooks. You said it was probably about about four years ago now. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any pseudonyms? I know when I checked Audible, you've got something like 160 titles or something like that. I do not. No so pseudonyms. It's all under your own name. Um, do you have a specialty, uh, a niche? I, I know certain things that you do, but I'd kind of like to hear your um, take on what you focus on. I mostly focus on genre fiction, but I have like subsections over that that I'm most known for, that most of my work comes from. Um, so uh, genre fiction overall, but I get a whole lot of... Some of them are hard to quantify. Uh, progression, fantasy, and cultivation, and uh, yeah, that does game sound lit. like a subgenre. Okay, so game lit, I definitely want. But they're get both into. incredibly big, and there's a lot of overlap between them. Um, so, I guess uh, if you're not familiar with progression fantasy, it's kind of like it, it, it's usually fiction that has a power climb, where some character gets amazing abilities over the course of it. There's some sort of uh, progression that's inherent to a system or a world or magic or whatever, where this person just gets amazingly powerful over the course of this book or hmm. series. And they're usually long series. And a lot of that comes from um, uh, Chinese cultivation fiction, uh, Xianxia, which is like um, the closest analog I can think of to explain to people is Avatar The Last Airbender. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a westernized version of kind of cultivation fiction, people with cool powers that get amazingly powerful over the course of it with a kind of like an Eastern influence. Progression fantasy doesn't necessarily have the Eastern influence, but has that same like power progression sort of thing going on. Um, and then Gamelit is like that in some ways. It can often be progression fantasy. It's about people in a game world or a game system or something like Ready Player One. Uh, where, where they're getting more, they're often leveling up or getting more powerful over the course of the series. And the series tend to be very long, like lots and lots of volumes, 10, 12, 16. A lot of them are are written as web serials and they tend to have very fast release cadences. Um, and then the best of them are just like all fiction. They're also concerned with really interesting human things and they have really great human drama at their core. And those are the ones that are always the best. Um, the one that I'm most known for is called, uh, the cradle series It's written by Will White. Um, the most recent book was like number one period on Amazon, um, for days it's, they're amazing and they're self-published. So, um, and then the audio actually made the NMIT audio, which I've never had happen before and was amazing. Yeah. That's Um, very cool. I, I think that's the one you were talking about. So the last time that I saw you in person was APAC a couple of years ago. And, uh, so long. <laughs> it was, wasn't it? It feels like, like a decade, but, uh, that was just such a, such a happy coincidence that you were still around and you were in the bar with, uh, I think it was Gary Bennett, if I remember correctly. It was Gary. Yep. And, uh, and then Pat Fraley showed up and, uh, mm-hmm. talked to him for a while. And then, uh, Austin rising. Yep. Austin and, was there. Uh, that, that was a great, great evening. Unexpected. Just, you know, whoever was around and could get together. And I think that you were talking about the Will White series, uh, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly, I, I might be misremembering. I might've just remembered that from online, but, um, but in any case, it, it does sound like a pretty amazing thing to be able to work on. I mean, for me, it was just like, I, I just feel fortunate that I got to work on it at all because, you know, it's his books that are the good stuff. I just get to not screw them up. That's my job. <laughs> Don't screw them up. Yeah. Um, and he's there there. He's uh, I mean, he went to school 
as a as a writer of fiction. That's what his degree is in is 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 as an actual author. And he's very he, a he writes well, he writes well. He writes religiously, and he puts out books frequently. He's kind of got that Brandon Sanderson kind of. This is someone who does the work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they're they're just ridiculously popular, and they're just a ton of fun. Um, yeah, it's 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 always good when when you get to work with an author who not only is popular but writes well. <laughs> and it's great. And what it's it great. is that you get to narrate is actually fun to narrate and a good story. I love to be able to be a fan of a lot of the stuff that I do. Like I just finished a book from Eden Hudson today, right before this podcast, which was just awesome. Eden just writes like a freight train. She is amazing. The books are so fun to do. They're so lean and well-constructed. And the whole last quarter of this was just emotionally wrenching. Mm -hmm. And it was done so well. I mean, that's one of the great things about, that's one of my favorite things about genre fiction is that stuff can be tropey. You can have very mediocre genre fiction, but a lot of times you get really amazing stuff and you just aren't expecting it when it Mm -hmm. hits you. And I mean, it's like, it's like getting gut shot and not realizing it happened until you look down later and you got like a lap full of blood. It was like, <laughs> wow, what happened? That was, that was incredible. And those, I, I, I'm, I'm fortunate to have quite a few books that have had those kinds of amazing moments in them just due to their authors. And it's just such a pleasure to get to do them. Yeah. It's just, um, it's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I've had a couple myself where, um, I, I started reading and I thought, oh yeah, okay, so this is the next thing I have to work on. All right, well, I'm going to fit this in and, and what, and, and then the more I start reading it, the more I want to read it, the, the more interested I am in the work that I'm going to be able to do. And by the time I was done with, uh, with a couple of books, I was like, I don't want this book to end. It was, it was like my, mm-hmm. I was so passionate about reading when I was a kid. It was, it was like taking me back to that era when it was like, I would read a book and I would be sad when the book ended, not because it was a sad ending, but because it didn't go on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just, I, I love being able to work on those projects and they're, you know, there aren't that many of them there. There's, um, a lot of, not that anything that I narrate, I, I thought was bad. It's, I mean, a lot of us can say that, you know, that does happen occasionally, but, um, I've been pretty happy with the stuff I've gotten to work on, but the, mm-hmm. but the real diamonds are, are the ones that just, you, you just want it to go on forever, both as a listener and as a narrator. Yep. So yep. That's, that's... I, I literally hassled the, the publisher because I saw this book coming out. This is the third in the series. And I was like, so when am I getting it? It's now, right? I need it. I need that's, it. That's great. That's that's great. And it sounds like you have a good relationship with uh, with at least that one author and possibly many others. One of the great things about the genres that I narrate in is that um, a lot of them are mostly produced by smaller publishers. Um, so I work a lot with publishers like uh, like Mountaindale and Shadow Alley, um, and they do a lot of this kind of genre fiction. And you get to know the people who run the companies, you get to know the authors, and it's this very, A, they're just, they're just fabulous people, but you have a very um, direct relationship with them, which is really nice. I mean, I do, I, I, I do books for Audible Studios and Tantor and Podium, and I love them all, but the relationship that you have with these smaller publishers, and then often directly with the authors, is just kind of, it's, it's hard to beat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do a lot of my work live. So I narrate live on Discord almost every day um, with regular hours. 
And often the authors come and hang out with me while they're doing it. And it's really neat to have that sort of direct connection. And I've never had a problem with it. It's not like they're backseat directors. They're just there and excited about their book and that somebody else also cares about their book and is, you know, breathing life into it right now. And it's, it's, it's amazing. That's, it's, that's it's, very cool. That, that was my next question. Uh, that could be problematic if you've got somebody who wants to stop you every sentence and say, oh, no, emphasize this word instead. Never once has it been. Excellent. Never once has it been. Um, I think that um, to a certain extent, it's because these are, I mean, these are mostly, these are, I mostly work, I pretty much almost exclusively work per finished hour. So I, I think you pass kind of like a tier of, of, it's like that that thing going around that you see where it says like I, I'm going to pay you five hundred dollars for this project and I want us both to take take stock and see how both of our lives are going to change and I'm making an investment in you and this is really a big deal, and then the next the next option is like from a you know a real professional it's like hey here's five thousand dollars <laughs> get it done yeah. that's the extent of the interaction yeah. you know. Because they trust you to do your job. Yeah. Now, I, I was just um, talking to my wife about this today about a, a customer of hers, totally different business, not audiobooks. But um, something happened, and based on previous interaction, I said, eh, sounds kind of like a bullet dodged. Um, the people who want to pay the least are usually the ones who are the biggest pain in the ass to work with. Um, and I, I think that that is true across industries. Yeah. And uh, some of this, there's not, there's not as much of a this is not a situation for most of these books where the author has just the a publisher has the book. The author has no say the author doesn't know who the narrator is and then finds out later and is surprised. Usually they either ask for me or it's, it's much more direct. It was much more intentional. So it's not like they don't know what they're getting. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's good. So tell me about lit RPG. That was another thing where I was, I was having a conversation with somebody and I said, well, you know, this possible thing came up for lit RPG and they're all mm -hmm. lit I RPG. What the hell is that? Is that like a video game in a book? And I said, well, yeah. Kind of. And we're like, what? Is that a thing? Yeah. So, so tell me about that. That seems to be an in like just a booming area in audiobooks and in books. Booming area. It is a booming area. Um, so at the top level, I think you call all of this sort of game lit. It's got some relationship to games, a game system. It's in a game world. Ready Player One is game lit, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the guy goes into a video game and does stuff with mm -hmm. VR, right? Um, but lit RPG, when you kind of boil it down a little further, is usually uh, a little more explicit than that about its gaminess. Like, it might specifically tell you the description of a skill that a character is using levels are explicitly gained as a character gains experience some authors literally roll the dice when they are writing the book to find out if somebody lives or dies oh holy um, cow that would be such and then a we'll put those numbers in the book that you know, would and then write around fun it. project they're very <laughs> they're very um they're they're more tightly bound to games and game systems that doesn't mean it even has to be a game there is lit rpg where it is a real fantasy world that just happens to operate on a system that you can see as the reader, but that the characters in the book might not know about hmm. or don't think about as being a game. Um, I have uh, I have a book called uh, it's a series called Divine Apostasy, where there's this system that basically all these gods have agreed on. So there's these warring gods that basically have agreed that there's this system to the universe for the people in it that is structures to make everything fair as these gods kind of like compete against each other and vie for power. 
So the people are using these systems just because the gods needed a way to kind of divvy up, divvy up the world and the resources. <laughs> um, so, but, but there's often a lot of references to games. So people who enjoy games, who enjoy specifically MMOs often, um, there's a lot that is, that is, that is referenced from those kinds of titles. So, um, and, and again, it's, it's, it widely varies from book to book. And, uh, there's an element that's called, uh, usually called crunchiness, which is how, uh, how number centric and system centric it is, because you can have gamelet that is very light on the gamelet. Again, Ready Player One's a good example. You mm -hmm. don't really know how the game works. He's just in a cool game world doing cool game stuff. Mm -hmm. But another is going to tell you, uh, you know, he, he rolled a six and missed, and, you know, that's how many points of damage he did. It's much more, and that's usually called crunchier, where it's got more of a focus on the nuts and bolts of the systems underneath it. And I've, yep. done, yeah. I've done both, and, and they both can succeed for totally different reasons. Um, <laughs> and I, I assume that in one like that, that is crunchier, that's the type where you're going to have at the end of the chapter, you're going to have the box that has, you know, the stats for the player and that says, you know, this is what and level they're at and like that. Um, early on, I think there was more of that. And I think that authors have kind of gotten wise to the fact that audio is a huge portion of their audience because so many of these are translated to audio. Um, and they have started to be pretty intentional about not having redundancies. Uh, um, and sometimes they'll make an edit for audio specifically to remove a certain amount of that so that it doesn't get in the way of the audio experience. Cause you can't skim it the way you would skim a page. Right. So, so if you have earlier in the chapter that they, that something happened and their level came yeah. up, then you don't need to repeat that. A lot of times what books will do is it'll start out a little bit verbose and then the character will find the in-game setting to make things less verbose <laughs> as like <laughs> an explicit. Great as an explicit way of justifying the fact that they're going to hide some of this away now. That's pretty meta. But, but it's still there. You that's, know, they can see it's still there. <laughs> that's, that's cool. So do you think that you kind of, um, well, maybe specialize isn't the right word, but that you've done a lot of work in that area because of your history with gaming? Weirdly, no. You, so you think that's completely separate? I don't separate. think it has anything to do with my gaming. I think that may be some small advantage to me in reading it aloud and understanding some of the references. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I did not do that at first. I came to it late. Um, I kept thinking, well, I kind of, maybe I should do that. I was always a little leery because it's like, um, it's like if you spent your life building airplanes and somebody who had never built an airplane wrote a book about building airplanes, you'd be like, ah, you know, yeah, I'm going to find, do they so really know what they're this. talking about. And right. like, is this going to grate on me that they don't understand? And and some books do. It's like, yeah, I wouldn't, that, that, that wouldn't work. But largely it's also still fantasy. Mm -hmm. I can't cast magic either. You know, it's, it's fantasy. So pretty quickly you, you let go of that. But I've also had books that I was actually really impressed about how well thought out they were from, from the standpoint of a designer, mm -hmm. like, wow, they, this is actually really well articulated. And I could really code thoughtful. this. This is, this, this actually makes sense. Um, and usually a lot of them will bend the rules for, for narrative reasons, but it, you know, you get, you get a wide range. Um, anyway, it's, it's, I, I really did mostly genre fiction and progression fantasy. Again, the aforementioned cradle, um, which really led to a lot of other stuff because again, there's a lot of audience overlap because the mm. ultimate, the ultimate attraction for a lot of both of those genres is the power climb. It's somebody, it's the zero to hero thing. Mm. You start it, you know, as a nobody and you become a God mm -hmm. over the course of however many volumes. And it's a very similar component 
in in both genres. So tons of audience overlap. So yeah. I ended up kind of sidling into it. That's, now it's maybe half of what I do. That's that's cool though. It's 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 always interesting to me when people have something in their background and then do something else that seems like it's completely related when it's actually not or only just kind of tangentially to to the background that they have. Um, so that so that's cool. Um, so you said it's about half of what you do. Is there anything you won't do? Any any books come along that you say, you know what, I'm just not going to do that. I haven't had to turn anything down on content grounds yet. And I'm and I like almost everything. I I would love to do a cozy mystery. I like I've done some romance. I like I like almost everything. I, I think I probably have a line that I would draw at non-consensual sexual stuff at like underage stuff. There's I have a line that I won't cross, but it has not been one that has been presented to me yet. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not prudish. And, uh, I think there's good stuff to be found in just about every genre. Yeah. No. And, and that's a, that's a common line. Um, I've heard that many times from many people uh, here in the speakeasy and elsewhere, just talking to yeah. people. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who say, nope, no interest in doing that. So I yeah. totally understand that. Um, that's cool. So, uh, it sounds like, uh, based on what you said earlier about building, uh, buying, uh, I believe that you said that you bought a studio, you bought a booth. Yeah. I bought a studio bricks because okay. it was the only thing I was going to be able to fit in my house. And, <laughs> and so is that still the same booth that you're using today? Um, actually, no, I got a slightly bigger one. I sold my old one to Scott Brick. Oh, when no he, kidding. During the, during the pandemic, cause he needed a booth at home. I've, I've heard um, of him. Yeah. You've heard of him. It's yeah, weird. Yeah. Um, I got a, I got one that was about a foot bigger ah. because I had a, I had a bigger office space when we moved and I knew I just wanted a little more elbow room, yeah. um, partially because the heat build up just based on the volume, anterior volume. It's, it's builds up a lot faster, the, the less space you've got. Yeah, no, totally um, understand that. And, uh, I wanted to do one of the ones that had a, a built in table so that I could get a little bit more knee room. I was just a little cramped. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I thought that eh, now's the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do it with the move. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, so you did it when you moved out there. I did it when we moved. So, um, Got and it. it, I, I love my booth to death. Oh, sure. So that makes sense because Scott was recording in studios and now all of a sudden the pandemic hits. All of a sudden the pandemic hits. He needs a, yep. a booth at home. Yeah. Exactly. And here's one you can get a studio bricks that doesn't have to be shipped from Spain and take X months to get there. Yeah. I looked into that. Who is that? Um, I can't remember who that is, uh, from Spain. It's uh, studio bricks, I think is the name of the company. Um, oh, so, I, so that's who it is from Spain. I, I couldn't remember. I, I looked into it, uh, mm -hmm. and it was the expense for me. That was, it's that was like why half of the expense is just from getting it here. Yeah. Cause it weighs a ton. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was crazy. And so that was when I decided to just build my own. And if I had known what kind of a project I was setting myself up for, <laughs> I may have actually kind of sprung for the, the pre-built. Um, I'm, I'm not sorry that I built my own. I learned a, a just a shit ton of information about building something like this by doing my own, but I was I determined bet. to, to build something that was, you know, serious, not just yep. four pieces of plywood. Um, and so, mm -hmm. so I, I learned a ton and, and it was great and it did save me a lot of money, but holy cow, it, it took me way long. And I, I thought that I had overestimated the amount of time it was going to take me to build it. And I was wrong. It was, it was nuts. <laughs> so anyway, uh, anyway, that's, that's cool. So you have your booth, uh, at home. I think you said it was in the basement. It is. We've got a walk-in basement. So what about, um, what, what about, uh, problems with people making noise upstairs? Is that ever an issue? So, I mean, this thing is triple walled. 
Um, Ooh, and nice. I've got it on, uh, I've got it on any vibration mats, but I have two children, one, uh, one 16, one 11, and they don't really so much walk as they do fall from <laughs> foot to foot. So yeah. there's an area right above me where if they walk, I get the thump. Yeah. Um, for the most part, I mean, they can vacuum outside the door. I can't hear it. Um, there's occasionally low flying military planes that'll bleed through. I mean, you can't, you can't get rid of everything. And I nope. still stop when they have a lawnmower outside the window. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's pretty good. That's um, good. That's good. So you don't have to worry too much about the timing of the rest of the house. No, I know nope. the kids and from normally my kids would be at school, you know, during the year, this last year, not so not much. So much. Yeah. <laughs> from, from everything I hear about people with kids, I don't have any kids, but from everything that I hear, they can get through pretty much anything besides an anechoic chamber. Oh, they can, they yeah. can, they can. So, <laughs> so, um, speaking of lit RPG, so one of the reasons that I thought about, about talking to you about the, the game lit stuff, lit RPG was because this, this project came up for me and I thought, you know, I would, I would love to do lit RPG just because it is another area that I would be happy to work in. And although I'm not mm -hmm. a serious gamer, um, I have played, you know, my share of video games. Of course, I go back to the console days since I'm old and, um, you know, I, I had uh, my favorites of the console games and I've gone through my share of consoles here at home and, mm -hmm. and played some games. So I'm, I'm familiar with games and I think it's great that people are enjoying that as uh, entertainment, as something to listen to. So this project came up and I thought, okay, I don't know if this is going to happen. It didn't. I, I don't know who got it. Somebody else did. That's fine. But what it made me think of was, okay, so if I book this, I'm going to have to learn how to do this right. And so the first person I thought of was you. Do you do any coaching? on performance when it comes to specifically Gamelit or maybe anything in general? So I've never really coached anyone. I'm leery of hanging out my shingle for it at this point. Um, I like to share information. So I have talked to quite a few people and I, and I can, and I have done so in a detailed way. And I also make videos because that's a way of doing it once and not doing the same thing a hundred times. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, I don't coach, but I am always happy to talk to people about it. I mean, a lot of the rules really get down to kind of an approach to genre fiction, because it really is genre fiction. Usually it's fantasy, sometimes sci-fi, occasionally horror even. I mean, you could have a cooking lit RPG if you wanted to. Um, but <laughs> that would the be vast majority of it is fantasy. The vast majority is, I've done a racing one. Um, the vast Whoa. majority is fantasy, um, which means, um, and a lot of it is really about there's a ton of audience, again, audience crossover from people who like, for instance, animation, anime. They, maybe they watched Dragon Ball Z. Maybe they watched Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, and they've often obviously played a lot of games. And there is generally a, a style to the way that dialogue is delivered, both in games and in animation. Often there's a lot of crossover. Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say that it's necessarily cheesy or over the top or goofy, although it can be. I mean, you look at some like Studio Ghibli's, they've got these incredibly well done dubs of, of animation. Um, but there is still like some style to that, some specific style and a certain amount of expectation when they come across and listen to an audiobook that people are going to perform the voices as voices, mm -hmm. that it's not going to be just read. Um, and that people are going to make an effort to differentiate more so than you will see in most other genres. Like I would not approach, um, lit fic <laughs> the same way that I approach cultivation, uh, a cultivation novel. I just wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Um, 
because the audio ex audience expectation is different. So a lot of it is really just making sure you understand what that audience expectation is. Um, there are kind of nuts and bolts things when you get into things like reading stats and numbers and, um, and how to do that in a brisk way that doesn't detract and allows you to get back to the meat of the, the narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, and also just making sure that if you see references, keeping your eyes peeled for references, you might not reference, might not recognize so that you can inflect them properly if need be. Mm. If somebody says Leroy Jenkins in the book and you don't know what that's referencing and you don't say it right, people will notice. That's so funny because <laughs> that's an interesting thing that you, that you said just there because I have seen that name and I know that it's important, but I would be one of those people who would do it wrong because I, and, I don't know the specifics. And so that's the thing where if you see those kinds of references, you want to look them up. Mm -hmm. YouTube's probably going to have it. So if you look it up, you'll see it's basically somebody who the party's planning to go and, and attack something. And this is the guy who runs off before they're done planning and bellows at the top of his lungs, Leroy Jenkins. Mm -hmm. And and so if you know that, you know how to inflect it. Mm -hmm. And just keeping your eyes peeled for those references so that if you don't recognize them, you go look them up in the same yeah. way that you would look up a word that you've never that you don't know the pronunciation for. It's it's a reference that you should familiar, familiarize yourself with before you vocalize it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I hit that with nonfiction all the time is, mm -hmm. um, you know, well, here's an and it came up just recently in a book that I did. Uh, Dick Vitale. So I am not a sports guy, not remotely a sports guy. And I saw that name and I thought, okay, Vitale, that's the way I would say mm -hmm. that name, right? But I thought, oh, I, I look everything up. I, I get a nonfiction book and I write everything down that I have even, you know, 1% chance of not being correct. I go ahead and write <laughs> it down. And then I look it up and I saw the first reference to somebody saying Dick Vitale. And I thought, really? Nah, they must have been wrong. And then I, I, I got all these, all these other references and I thought, <laughs> okay, so I just learned something here. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm, I'm sure that that's the same type of thing where if you're reading, yeah. a, reading through a book like that and you see a name that, uh, clearly, you know, given the context has some kind of meaning, look it up. Yeah, and, there, and, and then there's a certain amount of just game reference stuff from like systems. So if somebody's listing out their statistics and one is AGI, I mean, that means agility. And if you were going to say it out loud, you would say AG because it's agility ah. and it's an abbreviation for agility. You wouldn't say AGI, you'd say AG. Okay. So there's, there's, there's just little shorthands, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So it's, it's good to know that you don't do coaching. I know that I, I have seen you um, post videos before and um, mm -hmm. believe me, if anything like this comes up, you'll be the first person I call. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I don't, I don't feel comfortable at this point, like charging someone money for their time. I would yeah. rather assemble information that I'm confident of and put it out there and let people have it if they want it. And I will happily talk to anyone. If you want to ask me stuff, please do. I'm not going to, I'm not going to even charge you the cup of coffee. I just, I, I love this industry. The industry has been really good to me. I'm happy to just help out. Yeah. So no, that, that's cool. It's, it's good to hear. I, I do the same thing with, um, you know, somebody just sent somebody my way and I've got a friend here in town who's, who's really doing all the right things getting into it. Cause you know, the first time somebody asks that question, it's like, well, yeah, you know, you got to do this and you think, yeah, they're not going to do anything. Well, this friend of mine, he's actually, he has gotten coaching now and he's gotten good equipment mm -hmm. and he's built out his space and he's like, he's serious. And I'm like, I love talking to people like that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm happy to help out. <laughs> I've kind of assembled uh, my first line of defense about you know, a lot of the simpler questions, I made videos for those things. So mm -hmm. if somebody asks me those things, I can direct them to the videos, Yeah, yeah. which means mostly if I'm talking to you, I'm talking about something interesting. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and if I find out that I'm talking about something over and over, I'm just going to make a video, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's my narrator's roadmap to do, you know, I, I send people to Karen Cummins site all the time, but yeah, I also yeah. send them to videos that I've recorded. Oh, do you want to look at, here's a thing, here's a video about lit RPG and things to keep in mind. You know, here's a, here's a video about breathing. Here's a video about, you know, how to use this stuff in Adobe Audition. So things that I get asked act frequently, I just sort of ball it up, yeah. put it out there. And then I don't, and then I can just point people to it. Yeah. No, I, I do the same thing. I, Sean Pratt's, you know, first video about uh, becoming an audiobook narrator and mm -hmm. um, Pat Fraley's video on breathing and a few other things. I, I do the same thing. But then once somebody is actually serious, if they want more information from me, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm happy to talk to you. Just buy yeah. me a drink. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's cool. Good to know. So um, you are, I know that you are phenomenally busy with the audiobook work that you do. What do you do when you're not narrating? Um, so one of the things that I am learning how to do, uh, now that I'm doing audiobooks full time is just breathe and kind of live my life when I'm not working, which is really unnatural for me, but I've been, uh, <laughs> so I spent a long, a long time doing a job that was really, really stressful. And so when I was done, I was like a serial hobbyist. I just had to have something else that gave me some dopamine hit of reward for doing something creative after work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I find that I don't need that to the same extent. Now I enjoy my work. I get a great creative little tingle. It changes all the time. And I also have to be done by like three or four in the afternoon. So I have the rest of my day. It's great. I feel like I have room to breathe. So sometimes I read, I go on walks. I've been, you know, losing weight lately, you know, doing some fitness stuff, but nothing super demanding. I'm just kind of learning how to be a human being who doesn't work all hours of the day, which now, is why, really nice. Why is it that you have to be done by three or four o'clock? Um, I, I work on a schedule. So I start at like, uh, about eight 30 or nine in the morning. I take my first break for lunch. I come back by 1230 or one and I do my work and then I get my three finished hours for the day. So, so, so that's like a self-imposed schedule. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I'll, I'll start to wear out. I can't, yeah. I can't sustain more than three finished hours a day for a long period of time without you know, having to take extra rest days. So Three I kind of know my limits. Holy cow. Do... That's like, <laughs> that's, that's way more than I can manage. So I, I, I hear you. So I, I appreciate the fact that, uh, it's a self-imposed limit, um, based, yep. based on your knowledge of how you work and what you can manage. And some of that's relatively recent. I found that I made myself a much more efficient reader by reading live because I don't take weird breaks. I don't go off and find a snack. I don't browse the web. I just do my work mm -hmm. and then I take my break and then I come back and I do my work because somebody might be there watching me. Yeah. And so that's been really kind of transformative for me and just getting my hours in in a reasonable period of time and then being done. So if, so if, it's amazing. If people want to watch you, I know that I, I always find out where people, uh, can, can find my guests here in the speakeasy uh, on mm -hmm. social media, if people actually want to watch you narrate, where would they, how would they do that? Uh, it's hard to say live because it's a, a weird little discord link, but I include the link on my Twitter profile, my Facebook profile, my website, basically anywhere I'm at. Okay. I usually include the link, but it's going to be some series of bizarre characters after, you know, discord dot something. Okay. So you um, click on that link and then that will take you to someplace where you can watch. It basically presents you an invite via a browser to join the server if you want. Once you've joined the server, then if you ever go to discord again, it'll be, it'll exist in the little server list along the left and you can return to it if you want or leave it if you, if you, if you don't care about it. All right. Yeah, no, that's cool. I will definitely uh, stop in. So where can people find you online? 
Um, I've got a website, travisbaldry.com, which I never update, um, <laughs> even though I said I would. Uh, Facebook, I have a, I have a, a narration Facebook page and my Twitter at Travis Baldry. Um, and those I both use pretty frequently. So um, if books are coming out or if I'm starting on a new thing, I, I tend to post about those there. Um, but ideally with something interesting. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my main online. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll include that in the show notes. And, uh, you said that the, the discord link was in your, your Twitter profile. Yeah. Twitter and Facebook. It's in all of them at some point. It'll okay. have like a little discord link. Cool. Yeah. I'll include those in there. That's great. Well, so as somebody who's been, uh, you know, narrating and pretty prolifically for about four years now, what words of wisdom would you have to somebody who's uh, just starting out or maybe has got a few books under their belt? A lot of it is long-term success is going to be about luck. So it's mostly about working so that you can take advantage of that luck when it hits. (laughs) Nice. And that in the end, it's really about the books and not about you. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. It's about the books, not about you. Good, good advice for life as well. Not always about you. Uh, so that's great. Th- Travis, thanks so much for, uh, for coming in tonight. I hope the uh, single malt was good. It was delicious. It's all gone. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, my pleasure. So is my, uh, Manhattan sunset. I, I like this combo. I, uh, I would recommend it. I'm going to have to try it out. That or I'll have you make it for me when I see you in person. Yes, no, that, that would be year. great. I, I can't wait until that can happen again. It's, it's funny because after the pandemic started, I was thinking, boy, I don't know, I go to these conferences and I think I'm done shaking hands for the rest of my life. But, you know, at this point, I'm like, well, now that I'm vaccinated, I just want to hug people. I just want to hug everybody. Shake, hugs shake somebody's from... hand and, and you know, get close to people. I'm just so sick of this. So, uh, so yeah, I, I look forward to the next time that I can get together with narrators in person. That's going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah. All right, thanks a lot, Travis. Thanks again, Rich. that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Travis Baldry for coming in for a drink. I really enjoyed hearing all about his work in genre fiction, progression fantasy, and game lit, and I hope you did too. Don't forget to check out the sponsor for tonight's episode, Squeaky Cheese Productions. They're on the cutting wedge. They're on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com, and I'm very grateful for their support of the audiobook speakeasy. As always, you can find the audiobook speakeasy on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and all the usual apps. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our Speakeasy chats, please take a few minutes to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated, as it helps me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy. Many thanks to Tracy Lewis of Listen Closely Proofing for becoming the latest patron of the audiobook speakeasy. She joined at the beer level, and I am very grateful for her support. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! (laughs) ¶¶